Welcome to this episode of All the Best Craft Banter. On this episode, we're going to speak with Cole Boyd from Bent Stick Brewing, Shane Groendahl from Blind Men Brewing, and Brad Goddard from Big Rock Brewing. Cole and Shane are chatting with us about Unity Brew, this year's edition, and Brad is going to be chatting with us about the policy changes recently announced by AGLC, what they mean for you and your brewery. Uh, just a note, these segments were recorded a little bit far apart, so some of the time references may not line up with where we're actually at. For Unity Brew, we're actually brewing that on Friday, September 2nd. Um, so the week-long reference that might be in there, ignore that. So stay tuned for a bit more coming up. So we're going to jump right into Unity Brew. And Shane, maybe if you don't mind introducing yourself. Hey, thanks. Yes. My name is Shane Grondahl. I'm from Blind Man Brewing. We're based in Lacombe, Alberta. And uh, I'm also vice chair of the uh, Alberta Small Brewers Association uh, board. And Cole. I'm Cole Boyd. I'm one of the uh, folks from Benstick Brewing, based out of Edmonton, and this is my first year helping out with Unity Brew. Thank you so much for joining us today. So we'll start with the basic question. What is Unity Brew? Shane, you've been kind of chairing this committee for a few years now. What do you see Unity Brew as for the industry? So Unity Brew uh, is is a couple of things. One one is uh, it's it's a culmination of uh, everybody in our uh, association and in the craft beer industry coming together to make a beer together in support of our association. And uh, on the other side of things, it is uh, a representation to the public of, of what our what our collective industry uh, has, has to offer in terms of uh, in terms of products, in terms of knowledge, in terms of uh, bringing bringing people together in terms of expressing their community. Um, so it, it has it has kind of two facings. One is one is uh, facing the the industry, and it's a celebration of the camaraderie and and the and the work and our efforts. And the other is is facing the uh, the broader public as a, as a as a physical representation of of our industry. Great. And Cole, you're new to the committee this year, um, kind of taking over the reins from from Shane for next year. How do you view Unity Brew and its uh, position with the industry? Uh, yeah, similar to what Shane said for the base of it, but uh, I think a key part that I've always seen is it's the the opportunity for the, the brewers and the technical people within the industry to gather and just the highlight of that. It tends to be less of the, the day itself, tends to be less of the sales and marketing and the, the other side, and it's more the the nuts and bolts brewers having a chance to, to learn from some key speakers, talk to one another. It's always interesting to see the the collabs that come out of after the visiting at Unity Brew and the, the, the visiting community that's gathered along there. For sure. Yeah. So that kind of alludes to how this all comes together. We start with Unity Brew Day, which this year it'll be in Medicine Hat at Medicine Hat Brew Co. Um, on September 2nd. We're going to be gathering as an industry to do that. So what kind of things do you guys look forward to for that day specifically? Um, Cole, do you want to start? It's always interesting seeing what the host brewery does for the, the side activities. It's been everything from keg toss competitions to uh, who can attach a tri-clamp the fastest. So it's just a little bit of gamesmanship amongst one another is always fun to see. Um, it's always great seeing which breweries bring which beers to, to enjoy amongst one another over that day and sort of see who wants to show off what products and what they're, what they're putting out there. Cause it's, yeah, it's just a good way to, to get together and see one another. So unity brew day itself, is always good. We've never been the ones to to host Unity Brew and have to do the bulk of the, the physical brewing. Uh, there's only so many hands that can get on the brew deck at once, but uh, it's always nice to, to be the guest. Fair enough. And Shane, you guys at Blind Man have been the hosts. So how, what about Brew Day is special for you? I think about Brew Day, the thing that's most special for me is, is just getting the ability to to talk with everybody and, and visit with them when they're when they're all together at one site. Um, just the camaraderie is, is something that I that I find there's there's a lot of value in, and that uh, a, a lot of other brewers, uh, you know, especially during the long hot summer months, don't necessarily get a chance or as much of a chance to come out and and visit and and uh, and have that camaraderie. And so it's uh, especially being being uh, the Brew Day being in, in later uh, summer for the uh, uh, the Alberta Beer Week release date. Um, so we're it's a, it's a nice kind of finish to the summertime, kind of easier to, to kind of get out and, and visit. Uh, so I definitely look forward to that camaraderie, that visiting, um, and that, um, that community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely noticed on Brew Day, a lot of people kind of stay in the brew house and ask a bunch of questions about equipment and what people do differently. So it's an interesting learning experience in many ways. And 
Cole, you alluded to it. We do have guest speakers. And this year, we're going to focus heavily on the ingredients because we're fortunate to have partners that donate our ingredients. So can you guys talk about that relationship a little bit? Uh, maybe Shane, go first. Yeah, the relationship with the vendors is is amazing. Um, they're, they're key to making Unity Brew a success. Uh, the vendors that we, we work with uh, are, are very important because they not only uh, are we getting to know them uh, when they're present at Unity uh, Brew on the brew day, but they also are donating the, the raw materials to the, to the brew. And they're very kind and generous in that regard. Uh, and that, uh, that means that uh, we have a very, uh, or a lower overhead cost to the, uh, to the actual production of the beer that we're, we're brewing. And, and that means a, a greater amount of revenue to go back to the association and support uh, the association operations. And Cole, you've been instrumental in developing this year's recipe. Uh, what vendors are we mostly working with this year? What recipe are we looking at? Yeah, we're doing uh, something similar to a, a new world sort of hellish lager sort of take on it. Um, so the, the rest was built around uh, raw two row malts, um, some origin pilsner malts, chip malt from origin, a little bit of honey malt from Hogarth malting as well as the Cananascus from uh, Redshed Malting. And then Hops Connect has been good enough to donate some Eclipse Hops, which is a, a newer Australian varietal. It's a lot fruitier. Generally, we'll be using a big IPA or something like that. We're trying to use it in a lot more like restrained quality quantities um, later in the process to be able to provide a little bit of a fruitier accent note. Um, and then a Starman Labs donating a yeast called Crispy, which is... It kind of makes this a bit of a pseudo lager. It won't take the full six plus weeks to make, um, but should still be very crisp and easy drinking and very approachable beer style. And then, yeah, we have the, the other vendors on the packaging side of things as well. The, the vessels and summit labels. And Whatever we aren't naming, I promise we'll be in the description for this, but we'll, uh, we'll definitely give a shout out over the next couple months to all of our vendor partners. But yeah, you definitely hit quite a few on the, on the head there. So as far as consumers are concerned, what do they have to look forward to when Unity Brew comes out? Like, what is the reason that they want to buy this beer? It's going to be very approachable, but still flavorful. There's nothing boring about the design of this beer. Um, it'll be interesting seeing the, the application of a, a yeast that's not super prolific in the industry in that crispy, as well as just the way that we're using this new hop varietal. Uh, and so it should be very interesting to drink. And uh, knowing that it's a, it's a fundraiser for the association, and the association's been able to use this money to get Alberta beer, other platforms, and support us in uh, marketing our products across the country and getting Alberta beer to be a bigger part of everyday life here. And so I think that resonates with a lot of our customer base. And I think if I'm not mistaken, we're going to try to sell it exclusively amongst our member breweries. And so it's a good way to get out and either support your, your favorite local brewery or pop out to one you haven't been to yet and grab, uh, grab some tasty. Oh, I think that's a, a very good summary. Um, I think that uh, the, the other thing that um, people could be excited for uh, is the timing of the release, perhaps, uh, amongst uh, Alberta Beer Week. So uh, that'll be uh, a week that is celebrating all things Alberta beer, right from, from farm to glass. I think we're making about 80 hectoliters of this beer, so about 8,000 liters or so across our 100, 100 members, 80 members, how many members do we have? We're about 82. 
across our 82 members that works out to about 100 leaders each if everyone wanted to take something. So, I mean, it shouldn't be hard to move through all of this if we get all hands on deck. And it's a, it's a great fundraiser for the association and everyone will get to put their stamp on it. So, yeah, hope to see everyone out there. Yeah. Just uh, one last thing is to say thank you for to Caden and his crew down at Mesmat Brew Co for being this year's hosts. And I uh, look forward to brewing with them in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Appreciate that. Thank you to Cole and Shane for taking the time to chat with us about Unity Brew. We're really looking forward to that initiative this year. You guys can watch out for that coming out Alberta Beer Week, October 14th in Taprooms province-wide. Next up, we have Brad Goddard, the Director of Government Relations at Big Rock Brewing, as well as our policy. All right. So thanks for joining us today, Brad. Um, really, we want to talk about the most recent changes that AGLC has put through uh, just in July here. But these are changes we've been working on for a while, and you've kind of gone back and looked at the history of how these changes came about. Do you want to share a little bit about that? You betcha, Blair. You know, and this is good insight into um, kind of that unseen part of advocacy or, you know, government relations, however you want to phrase it. We started talking about inducement in a formal way. So I'll say, you know, Blair, you're always saying, hey, we'd like this policy change. We'd like this policy change. For the stuff we're discussing today, in a formal way, it was kicked off in November 2020 with some engagement. The AGLC, what they do for folks listening at home or at work, uh, they will take each stakeholder, as was one of them, and they'll take you aside and they'll say, what would you like to see different? And then they'll ask other people the same questions, and then they compare to see how much alignment they get. And in this kid's situation, then they got us all together as a larger group and said, all right, uh, actually, I shouldn't get ahead of myself. So November 2020, they took us each to one side in a formal way and said, we're looking at inducement. What changes do you want? They released in February of 2021, they released the What We Heard, which is a summary of all of these anonymous comments. And they also released a draft of policy changes. Now, then we had, and you and I sat in on a meeting, then they brought us all together as a group and they had us kind of face off against other uh, associations. And in this situation, I will say this is reassuring beer occasionally has to find these moments where we work together as a category. And so Beer Canada uh, and ASBA, we aligned on a lot of these things. And that's important. The government needs to see people get along so that they're not always just picking what they'll call winners and losers or what the losers will call winners and losers, the winners is called. Uh, change and, and positive change. So uh, we didn't get a final. So from November 2020 to the release of the final audit, which was the dying days of July 2022, you know, we're darn near two years of formally looking at it and the better part of a year and a half of, of actually policy amendments in hand and nothing moving forward. And that's where you have spent a lot of time trying to figure out why we weren't moving forward the happy news is and maybe we don't want to get into how sausage is made um, <laughs> but the happy news is we, we did ultimately move forward on some of the things that were most important to us and some things that aren't terribly important to us as craft manufacturers but aren't uh but we're not against right and to that point kind of brings together there were a lot of stakeholders at the table it was our local craft manufacturers, the cideries, the distillers, us, plus the national associations like Beer Canada and Spirits Canada, along with several Canada. others. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there were a lot of stakeholders at the table, a lot of feedback. So like you mentioned, it was that back and forth of what does this group want versus that group? And how do we make it come together in a way that benefits everyone? So yeah, it did take a while, but we're really happy with the outcome because there was a lot of effort put into making sure these were done well but didn't make an uneven playing field for everyone. So maybe we can touch on a little bit what these actually mean. Um, so just kind of going down the list. The first one is providing the opportunity for more educational experiences. They've kind of opened that up a little bit to allow manufacturers more opportunities with reps, um, with agencies. Uh, do you want to detail that one a little bit? Yeah, and so this now means that if we want to invite key account buyers and and i'll say from within alberta or outside of alberta if we want to invite people who, who we want to engage with buyers from toronto or something like that we can now fly them in we can pay for their hotel room 
we can pay further meals when they're at our facilities and we can pay for educational experiences, which also includes conferences or like if, 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 uh, if somebody wanted to pay for one of their key account suppliers to attend our Alberta Small Brewers Conference, that's now all allowed. You know, in Alberta, there had been a gray area around educational, what constituted education, what constituted an acceptable expense. And, and we had talked a little bit, brewery tours were acceptable. And so manufacturers outside the province would say, well, how come now I can't have the tour of my brewery? Um, and we talked a bit about being able to safely transport people from our brewery. So this was one of the challenges we had as Alberta producers. If people come to our brewery and then they have some beers, it was against policy for us to pay for them to get home safely, right? We, we gave them some beers. They're not drunk, but maybe they've had more than they're comfortable driving. We could not facilitate getting them home safely. Or if you were doing staff training for a bar or restaurant at your brewery, because all the equipment's there, maybe you're showing people how to put together draft systems, you couldn't, you couldn't be a part of getting those people safely home, even though it was the responsible thing to do. So this uh, removes all of those barriers. It is restricted to educational experience. It exempts recreation. So you can't have a brewery tour and then go do like the Alpine slide in Red Deer. Can't do it. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> but you, can, you can do everything in the context of education under, in your four walls. Uh, and, and that includes uh, also accommodation outside. You don't have to have people sleep at your brewery, but you can put them up at a local hotel. For sure. And I think for the, especially the smaller manufacturers with probably limited funds towards educational opportunities, this opens up a range of um, strategies that they can employ, even with breweries within the same area, providing transportation between the breweries, I think falls under that as an allowable yep. thing. And so you can do your tasting and then send people on to your neighbor. Since we are such a collaborative industry here, there are ways you can take advantage of this. I think that would be extremely beneficial to getting your brand known elsewhere. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it. Hey, you know, it, it probably benefits producers from outside the province a bit more than us, but it, it solves a gray area that was always a problem for us, which was more the safe movement of our partners. For sure. Um, next on the list that AGLC put out was eliminating the term buy-sell agreements and replacing it with promotional agreements. And so, uh, all this is, I mean, they've basically taken an old term and gotten rid of it and, and said, all right, make whatever form you want. It's called the promotional agreement now. Um, make your own template, but the template must have, incidentally, all of the same things that a buy-sell had. So in spirit, uh, not much has changed other than the name. Um, and the name was kind of controversial. Like when we talk about inducement, buy-sell, a buy-sell agreement was basically the only time a manufacturer could say, hey, you buy my product. Uh, here's how much product you must buy from me. And here's what I will do for you. It was kind of a formal, uh, uh, and I dare I say it, formal inducement. Mm. I would make an agreement. I'll run this draw for a Yeti cooler if you buy 180 12 packs of my product. And then it was a formal agreement and you could, you could hold them accountable, you could hold each other accountable to what you'd agreed to. All of that still stays, it just changed the name and they're no longer providing a template for it. You can make your own promotional agreement template. Um, the one thing uh, that stayed the same that we had asked for was uh, no purchase necessary is still there. It's a federal requirement, drives me a bit crazy mm -hmm. that somebody could win an item of value that a brewer or manufacturer has provided, but that is a federal restriction. Yeah. The AGLC just doesn't have the mandate to change that. Mm -hmm. And um, they have adjusted uh, the, they had language in there that a buy-sell agreement could not prohibit a competitor's product unless the board approved. And so they removed that. And I remember years ago, Asking them, when would the board approve a buy-sell agreement for one of my competitors that inhibited me commercially? And of course, there's no, there really is no good answer to that. So the AGLC has removed their ability to approve promotional agreements, the new iteration, where they'd say, all right, you know, Brewery X, anything you want to do to, as long as the board has agreed that you, with your plan to inhibit Brewery X's growth, it's okay in the context mm -hmm. of this. So they've got rid of that. And the... Which, which I think is interesting. And the other thing that they have changed is you do not need a promotional agreement for items of a nominal value. So it used to be you needed a promotional a buy-sell agreement 
for everything that you gave. Uh, but now if it's under $5 and they use examples like corkscrews and bottle openers, uh, you don't need a buy-sell agreement for things $5 and, and under, which I think is is good because that paperwork, you know, is it's just paperwork that choke a horse on these nominal value things. The one element that I'm not sure I'm clear on is uh, they restrict it to a promotional agreement can be attached to products coming into the store or products already on hand. And so uh, I think there's some loose language around what those, uh, the limits around product on hand, what does that mean mm. from a, a, a promotional agreement standpoint? And there's a slight misalignment in policy across the policy books, but uh, it is the retention of winners. So if you do a contest draw, the licensee must retain the name, address, and telephone number of the person who wins a prize over $100. So $100 is still the watershed moment. It used to be that both the manufacturer and the licensee had to retain that information. And I said, well, you know, if, if a manufacturer isn't conducting, and the reason they ask you to retain this information is they want to make sure that it's not a golden ticket to someone who, like a licensee or a member of the licensee's family. Mm -hmm. But manufacturers don't always have line of sight. We're not there for the draw. We don't know who these people's family are. And so being accountable for that information and the, the integrity of that information, the retention of that information, I, we had maintained was an unfair burden, right? Why do two people have to hold the same information when mm -hmm. one person really isn't in control of it? Which we manufacturers don't know. If we're, if we're not doing the draw, we have no idea who it is. We don't know how, how the, we don't know anything about that. So, so they removed that in one element of this policy, but not both. So mm. in one place in the handbook, in one handbook, it says both the licensee and the manufacturer are on the hook. But in another place, they say only the licensee. And I believe their intention, because the manufacturer is removed from one piece of the policy, I believe mm. their intention is to honor that thing that two people don't need to hold the same information. The person who generates the information, i.e. picks the winner, they should be in control of that information and you have to hold it for two years. Yeah, no, that's a good point that we can follow up with AGLC on that just to ensure everyone's on the same page because we know how that goes sometimes, unfortunately. We do, we do. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so does that kind of cover the next piece about the online promotion restrictions? Mm -hmm. um, no, online that. promotion restriction. This one is the crown jewel of yes. what we, we wanted you know, when they drafted these policy handbooks, they didn't foresee things like Instagram, Facebook. They didn't foresee a digital world at all. And they didn't foresee a world where we had constant new innovation or maybe limited releases, uh, you know, sour beers made in fooders that, that are, we only make enough to go to a certain retailer or a certain select number of retailers. The online promotion, they had seen as if you drive traffic towards a specific licensee, so a manufacturer makes a beer, they say, get it here. If you put that on Facebook or Instagram, he said, I made sour power, get it at wine and beyond. You were not compliant with the policy. And we said our position as this position was that's lunacy. You know, with some of these limited editions, we should be able to direct consumers. And, and really at the end of the day, AGLC's policy is meant to, to inhibit manufacturers and licensees and serve the consumer. What makes the, what makes the consumer's life safe? easy. And, and that was our position. If we make these limited runs or we've got new styles of beer, we should be able to tell people where they can get it. Mm -hmm. And up until July 28th, if you put it on Facebook or you put it on Instagram, said, I got a new tap pouring at, you know, uh, the bank and Baron, you were not compliant. And, and frankly, you know, we knew uh, anecdotally, a lot of our members were offside on this, partly because the uh, the reading and comprehension of the policy was not robust. And so it's gone. And this was our highest, our highest get, you know, the best get we got mm -hmm. was relaxing that rule. Um, and I think it's great. So it means what, what it means in layman's terms, if you hit launch a new beer, you get a new tap, you can go to Instagram, Facebook and say, get it here. And you can name the location. You can put a picture of it. Uh, no problem. Yeah, makes makes a significant difference for our smaller manufacturers. Absolutely. The ones that are just getting out into retail, especially, you don't generally start probably with 50 different stores that you're sending to. So 
This helps oh, it's a, a pain lot. in the neck. <laughs> when, when, when New Level puts out their dill pickle beer, I just want to know where I can buy it. I can get it from them. I want to know what store I can get it to get it from. And don't make it so hard. For me as a consumer, wearing my beer, buying hat. I don't want to, people to make cute pictures. So how some people, and Big Rock was one of them, we would take cute <laughs> pictures of, you know, a location in the background and say, oh, mm. I'm drinking this. And we don't have to be cute anymore. You can be explicit so the, the kid at the back of the class understands where can you get this beer? Oh, I know. <laughs> yep. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Next on the list is broadening the list of non-essential items. So this is helpful as well. It is helpful. You know, um, there's some spicier things on here. Th this list is maybe the, the list that changes the most often. And, you know, we've had glassware banned. All kinds of things have been on and off this list of prohibited items. The permitted items included uh, portable patio heaters, which um, we weren't necessarily opposed to, but another stakeholder in our category was a lot more strongly in support of. Mm -hmm. Menu printing and sanitation stations. Those were the three new entrants to non-essential items um, with still the remaining caveat that they can't be sold to consumers. So if you give bottle openers, all kinds of napkins, there's all kinds of stuff on there. Not lemon wedgers, all kinds of stuff. If you give it to a licensee, they can't turn around and sell it. Mm -hmm. It can be co-branded though. So any of the items on the non-essential list could also be co-branded. So, which is where menu printing comes in, is it can be co-branded, the, the joints. Name can be on it. Now you you might say, what the hell? Why would I want to print somebody's menu? And and I would say it's not a menu in the traditional sense, where some brewers, and myself and Big Rock included, we were getting dinged on some menu inserts that were communicating the price of our pints. So if we had a feature mm -hmm. pint and it appeared as an insert in the menu, some enforcers were interpreting it as having printed the menu because it was communicating, uh, you know, what, what, what constitutes a menu was left broad to broad interpretation. And so you could, depending on where you were in Alberta or which jurisdiction you were in, you could wind up getting in trouble in, in be totally legitimate and saying, I wasn't trying to print a menu. So this gets rid of all of that semantics, kind mm -hmm. of like uh, it, it means the enforcers now no longer have to decide how long a piece of string is, you know, what, what is a menu? What isn't a menu? Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so, so that's good. And, and I do encourage, you know, if there's other stuff that should be on there, this is one of those things, you know, uh, sanitation stations is on as a non-essential item masks. So, uh, and the AGLC came out hard and hot out of the blocks saying that masks were an essential item when the government right. mandated it. And when brewers who handle caustics and all kinds of stuff, when we had supplies of masks, you could not give them uh, in state compliant with policy. You couldn't give masks to licensees. And some people co-branded masks and you're just trying to be helpful with your shortage of masks. That was prohibited. And uniquely enough, it has remained prohibited. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's a moment in time, but sanitation stations would also probably be a moment in time, but they may do that. So anyway. But as you said, things get added and removed all the time. So if there are things that are becoming popular within the industry, that is something that AGLC will probably talk to us about and could be amended at any time, really. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, the next one is a pretty exciting one, uh, allowing for more flexibility with direct support from agencies for live entertainment. This one is very unique. So we had a lot of feedback, including feedback from some live music stakeholders in particularly Calgary, we heard a lot, where um, they said, and they don't make money on live music, but there's plenty of brewers that, you know, craft beer has always been supportive of the arts. And, and you get challenged, put your money where your mouth is. It's hard to organize your own music event, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if you want to support artists and artisans, it is not always easy as a manufacturer, as a brewer, to put that event together yourself. But it doesn't mean that we don't want to support it. And so the AGLC has compromised and said, all right, if you want to be able to support the arts now, you can. So if I go to the Ironwood, one of my favorite live music events, uh, as a manufacturer, I can pay for the bands, um, which was ver totally verboten. And you may say, hey, they're live music venue. That is one of the essential items of a live music venue. And that is the definition of an inducement is anything. If I'm displacing an expense that is otherwise necessary for their operation, live music, live music venue. But the mm -hmm. AGLC really bought into 
the culture of craft and how we want to be in, in community investors and 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 has said, all right, you guys can do it. If you want to hire bands to play at a live music venue, if you want to take an active part in supporting that part of a vibrant arts community, you can. The control is you must pay the band directly. It can't go through the bar. So I can't go to Ironwood, pay Pat, you know, 200 bucks for the band. I have to pay the band directly. And I love that control. Mm-hmm. It makes sure that the money, the negotiated price goes straight to the artist, which is the spirit of why we were supportive of this policy change. So it's, it's super interesting. I'm curious to see how our, our members take this to the community. Cause I think it, mm-hmm. it opens a lot of doors for us to collaborate with our licensees and make sure that, we don't become the soulless, you know, where people just go and they have a beer and it's just not a beer at home. You know, going and having a beer in your community should be a rich experience that's unique and you can't have at home live music. For my money, live music is a major part of that. Absolutely. Completely agree. And I think on that piece, in our advocacy for it, it allowed for multiple breweries to be that support for the live entertainment. So if there are breweries you work closely with, you can come together to support that live entertainment. So it provides a lot of opportunity for, you know, your marketing and again, supporting the cultural side of this community as well. So it's a good, it. a good change for sure. And if you're doing a stampede party, like where my mind goes is if you're doing a stampede party and you want to do it at a licensee and you want Matt Masters to play, now you can do it. You don't have yeah. to say, okay, bar, I want you to get Matt Masters and they go talk mm-hmm. to Matt. Like it's what a pain in the neck. So absolutely. Yep. It's an exciting change, especially because we do have so many of the great live entertainment places that exist around our breweries as well um, and support our breweries, uh, often on tap. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Next one is increasing the ticket price limit as the cost of tickets for some live events has increased beyond the current price maximum. So this one is actually increase. uh, They actually removed. There needs to be a limit, 500 bucks. And they got rid of it. They mm-hmm. kept in place, and, and I will use hockey tickets as the best proxy for this because this is generally about hockey tickets. As prices have inflated, the the cost of a ticket, you know, or Bon Jovi, I don't know, you name the event. Five hundred bucks sometimes meant that some events were on, some some were off. It still prohibits uh, buying a licensee's tickets. Um, so these tickets have to be purchased by the manufacturer and mm-hmm. and given from the manufacturer to a licensee. And they can't be season's tickets. So, so a manufacturer can't go and buy season's tickets and then just turn around and give them to a licensee. It has to be per, on, uh, on a per event basis. And that sounds a little fussy. However, it, it goes to that original guiding principle that you're not supposed to displace, you know, if, if a bar or restaurant wants season's tickets, you can't just turn around and buy season's tickets. Like, but you can give them the tickets to their seats or a box or, you know, where it opens it up is if you want to buy a box to a Garth Brooks concert. Now, without that ticket maximum, you you can do it. Um, so it's nice, you know, not totally applicable for a lot of our manufacturers, but never say never. There are smaller venues and smaller ticket prices out there too. You never know. A cavalry game, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you could see if you, if you bought a whole fan zone at the cavalry, and and the per ticket, so if the fan zone was two thousand dollars and four people went, you would be right on the edge of the old ticket price restriction, and and no more. So there is, like you say, Blair, there is other scenarios where this removal of the limit uh, would apply uh, in arts events. You know, maybe you go to a super yeah. exclusive run of rent and you buy I don't know, an opera box for it. I don't know. I, it, <laughs> less rules is always better. Yes. It opens the door for more things, which is, I think, generally what we're what we're looking for. Plus, we're a pretty creative community, so who knows how someone could apply this? Um, so, increasing the maximum wholesale cost of clothing items to one hundred dollars. So, I like this um, because, in in and I'll tell you. Well, I will tell the people who are listening because you and I know <laughs> our position was as craft manufacturers buying co-branded items for our licensees. So let's say you want to buy hoodies for a licensee. Um, You can co-brand them. So that hasn't changed. That was true previously. It's true still. But it would maybe be harder for you to buy from a local supplier. Mm -hmm. You want to buy from camp. And maybe you couldn't get in under $50. So then it forced you to make purchasing decisions that weren't necessarily local. If, If I wanted to buy 
you know, a light jacket from somebody in Inglewood uh, and get it co-branded, it had to be under 50 bucks. And that's generally, and dare I say, generally you're talking more offshore items. So we'd asked for a greater ceiling that would allow us to spend our dollars in our communities instead of a race to the bottom in, in terms of cost. And, and, and we got it, $100 now. And, and we also wanted to avoid a throwaway culture. Buy something cheap and people will treat it with you know, low regard and maybe it's disposable. It's not a good quality item. And so the AGLC has addressed that by lifting them from $50 items to $100 items. You can give it the, the one control that remains in place is it cannot be a uniform. So you can't give a $100 item to each of the service and say, by the way, now the boss says you have to wear it every single day. You can't do that. Now, if the staff decide to wear it every single day, they can, that's their prerogative, but you can't, it can't be a, a uniform. Right. Perfect. And then the last one that came out in July was increasing the on-pack value from 15 to 20%. This is more of the same. You know, uh, when you, it's the wholesale value of the item. So uh, for those not familiar, if you're, if you're giving away a bottle opener, 12 pack bottles, <laughs> nobody does it anymore. But if you were, the bottle opener could only be, it could only cost the manufacturer to a maximum of 15% of the wholesale cost. Of the case. So, you know, uh, that meant that if you had a $20 12 pack, then that bottle opener could not exceed what is it? A, uh, three, bucks. Two, three bucks. Three bucks. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's pretty tough when you're buying small quantities of something, like if you're not buying 10,000, it was really tough to get a quality item. And there again, maybe buy local. I've worked with Len Thompson fishing lures to get custom fishing lures, and they were always having to take a hit on their margin in order for me to be compliant with the AGLC rules. I'm trying to do something good. I'm trying to buy from a local supplier, but then I'd say, by the way, local supplier, this is how much I can pay. I want to put it on this pack. I can't pay more than this. And they'd say, well, geez, that's way lower than I would normally charge, right. but exposure, you know, all, all those things that it's terrible. It, 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 mm -hmm. it led to uncomfortable conversations. And so now you can do yeah, that same $20, 12 pack. You could procure a value added item that was worth $4. And, it, and it's based on wholesale costs. And this was a topic of discussion. There was some back and forth with the AGLC on should be on wholesale or retail. Mm. Um, the AGLC landed on wholesale costs. Right. Yeah. And I think that kind of touches on the entire concept of the inducements and prohibited relationships conversation. And we, as an industry, don't want people coming to us and asking for favors and discounts and things like that. And we don't want to have to ask other people for that. So several of these changes actually um, help that and make it so that we don't have to do that and hopefully get away from that kind of culture as well. I do have a couple more. Yeah, please. <laughs> I you're go back you're to the top our guy my list. with a handbook. I love uh, it. <laughs> I, I really dug in and I know we're getting tight on time. I apologize. <laughs> it is worth it though. Really, yes. this is um, all manufacturers, please li listen to this. These are all great ones and particularly the ones that, that we're going to continue to cover here. Um, so one of the other ones was uh, minimum sample size. So uh, we had had a lot of pushback. The minimum sample size for beer, for cider, for refreshment beverage was 355 milliliters. Yeah. Not a lot of our members have the capacity or capability to fill a 355 mil. It's not the standard serving that it once was. And so everywhere that that minimum sample size was dictated as a maximum of 355 mils has been up to 473 mils, which I think is great. It, it, you know, and I will call out it's specifically licensee samples. Uh, and this is, you know, in our in our agency handbook 5.6.1, a liquor agency, and this is that's manufacturers, we are also agents, you can now give 36 by 473 mil cans to a licensee per brand, you can do that two times a year. So if you give samples uh, to a licensee to assess the quality of your product, um, now you can give them 473 mils and not be offside of the policy, and you give them 36 cans of that. And they, they've also extended that to refreshment beverages and cider. And, and so where we had pushed back is tall cans are more common. And so the AGLC has cleaned all that up. It extends. Um, and some people might not be aware of that policy, but that is you can give it twice a year, 36 cans of one brand twice a year. You can give um, 
the minimum cake size you produce, you can give one keg, like a 30 liter keg, you can give it to a licensee twice a year. It has to be used for their staff to assess the flavor and quality of your product. They can't sell it. And that is, boy, <laughs> if you want to steer clear of hot water, you've got to make damn sure that none of this product that you're giving is, is licensee samples is turning around and getting sold. Now you can, and I have asked this, if the staff are having a birthday party, you know, after hours, safe consumption. I said, well, can I give samples then? Like it, it's only staff, it's not being sold. The answer is yes. After some humming and hawing, they <laughs> did agree to that because it is still the staff. They are still, it's not like just sitting down and writing tasty notes, but right. give me a break, you know. Okay. Uh, so you, you can do that. And, and to clarify, sorry, on that point, that's above that two that you're normally allowed in a year if it's a birthday party or is that within no, that that's too? that's inclusive so you would say hey uh license to dill i could give them a uh 36 cans twice a year or two kegs of the smallest size twice a year one of those events could be a staff birthday party so long as it's staff and so long as it's given them the intent that they're going to assess whether it's good or not one thing that i wanted to highlight is is some equipment, uh, dispensing equipment. So they did add in or more specifically clarify dispensing equipment, bar dispensing equipment in the inducement, uh, in the inducement revisions on what you can and cannot give them. It used to not explicitly call it bar equipment and now it does. And when you say, well, wait a minute, I go in and I see a, a branded draft tower somewhere. If you give a branded draft tower to a licensee, you have to have in place a loan agreement. Uh, for a fixed piece of time, that loan agreement basically stipulates that tower is my property, manufacturer's property, and I'm allowing these people to use it. Why that is good is if they take you off tap, then you can go back and say, that's my tower. Give it back to me. Or if the bar goes under, which happens, it does happen. I don't want to be a doom and gloom guy. It does happen. And maybe creditors have seized all the assets in this facility. You can go back and say, I want my draft tower back. They're expensive. And mm -hmm. tap handles. Tap handles are still exempted. Um, they clarified proprietary dispensing equipment. A tap handle could be thought of as a piece of dispensing equipment. And they have clarified tap handle is not, you know, a dispensing equipment. Gotcha. Um, the samples to public. So one of the other things that I, I wanted to cover, and, and, and it did come in as an amendment, samples to public, uh, they increased the can size from 355 to 473. But mm -hmm. the reason I'd like to just quickly cover on it is samples of public. As a brewer, you're launching a new brand. You can go out on a street corner. You can go wherever you're legally allowed to go. And you can give a can of your product to a member of the public. Uh, they have some uh, stipulations around it. The AGLC requires that it be marked sample or not for resale. And these are the same way you give samples to licensees. They have to be clearly marked in like indelible ink in a stick, super sticky sticker, not for resale. And you you got to make sure that the people you're giving these samples to are of the age of majority. Um, the restriction is you can't mail these samples. You couldn't just anonymously start the mail from 473 mail cans. The reason why is you have to be able to verify the person's age. But I wanted to highlight that. They, while it is technically a change, it was a change from 355 to 473. There's a lot of folks listening that may say, hey, I, I didn't know I could do that. And I would love to do that. I'd love to go to the Burbs and cart a bunch of suburban dads and each give them a sample of, of my product. Um, fantastic. And um, I wanted to touch the uh, same thing for vouchers. So occasionally mm -hmm. you'll have vouchers and they've made the volume change to vouchers. But I want folks who are listening to know you can give out vouchers to, uh, that can be redeemable at your uh, Class D manufacturing off-sale. They can't be used as a value add, so you can't say, hey, buy this 12-pack and you get a six-pack for free. Can't do that, but not for free. The voucher has monetary value. You mm -hmm. can't do that, but you could go um, outside instead of giving away full goods. One can, you give away a voucher for a six-pack. It has to be redeemable at, um, it can't just be redeemable at one location. It has to be redeemable at more than one location. And if people have questions around that, they can call ASBA and we can help counsel them on how to navigate that particular. Vouchers is is one item where we still pursue a little bit more clarity from yep. the AGLC on how to execute vouchers. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and some small changes around racking. And I will quickly say, you know, uh, insignificant, but uh, same policy changes. A licensee, you can give a licensee racks in the retail store. There's a size requirement, three by four by 72 inches or something like that. A licensee can only have four racks provided by an agency. And so the change was, it used to be that any one agent could only provide two racks. Now the same agent could provide all four racks. And there's uh, you have to have a written agreement in place. They've also removed the uh, maximum time limit. So it used to be gated. It could only be for 12 months. There is now, I don't believe, explicitly stated a maximum time limit. And there's no restriction on how many uh, of those four permitted racks, how many they could all be from the same agency. So not a, a tremendous win. I don't know a lot of our members would be providing the racks. I don't know a lot of this goes on anymore, but obviously somebody thought that it was important enough. And for those that, that see that as an opportunity, mm-hmm. it, it was a change of existing rules that might be a little esoteric, but it's a change. And the last one is loyalty program. Sorry, Blair. I know. No, go get ahead. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to remind people. So loyalty programs, there's a couple of chain retailers that have new loyalty programs. There's one chain retailer that is making the transition from one loyalty program, Air Miles would be a loyalty program, to another loyalty program. Uh, policy prohibits manufacturers from participating in any way in a licensee's customer loyalty program. That doesn't mean that people can't put Air Miles on your product. What it means is the uh, if it's a, a loyalty program, they can't bill you for it. They have to say, hey, you know, I'm running my own, like a, somebody could run their own loyalty program. They just can't bill it back to the, and Air Miles is a bad example because actually Air Miles, I think there's some cockamamie arm's length thing that would allow it. However, Air Miles is not going to be accepted in places anymore. But loyalty programs, just for our members, reminder, if you have a licensee asking you to participate and they want money from you for the loyalty program, you can't, you can't do it. Nobody want to really. You'd be happy to have them put their loyalty points on your stuff. You don't really want to get a bill for it. And the AGLC protects us from that. They can't give you a bill. <laughs> yeah. It's their choice to put it on your product or not. That That's on them. Exactly. Perfect. Awesome. So we will have links to all of these light um handbook changes in the description for the podcast so if you're curious about the exact wording and where to find more information you can go there but as always you can reach out to asva for more details or just clarifications um we're often the fastest place to go to i think (laughs) instead of aglc and if there are ever discrepancies um definitely reach out to us as well we can usually talk to aglc about fixing those a bit Um, yeah and and just further along that any any policy challenges you have come to us yes. you know anything we uh, we're limited by generally policy changes come about because somebody gets in trouble with something and and with the these recent inducement changes the aglc has finally put through our tickle trunk is pretty empty so i do encourage people you have a problem bring it to us we have a policy committee specifically hungry for for uh challenges in policy we have uh, AGLC partners and AGLC in government that are excited to to make change in policy and in our policy, our liquor policy in Alberta is light years better than every other jurisdiction in Canada. Uh, yeah. You know, really, our government partners uh, as has been quite effective at advocating for change. So, our other industry partners, we've got, we do have the best jurisdiction, and that is a credit to the, our partners in government and AGLC for creating modern liquor policy. But there's always room to improve and people just give us your ideas and your ideas are generally, I wish I could do, I got in trouble for, if your sentence starts with one of those, talk to us Yeah, and we'll see if, uh, if there's a path forward. Yeah. So that, that brings up two really great points. AGLC um, has been an excellent partner and in order for us to help them out a little bit more, uh, they are looking at different areas where they can still reduce red tape. So if there are those places where you've got caught saying, I got in trouble for, or I wanted to do this, but couldn't, maybe it is one of those policies that needs an update. And it could be one of those red tape reduction suggestions that uh, ASBA works on and floats to AGLC. So definitely bring those our way as you come come by those. And if you are interested in joining the joining the policy committee, Ooh. it's a great time to, exactly. It's a great time to come and like talk about these policies and what's affecting you and how it's affecting you. 
Um, every member's voice is valid. So it doesn't really matter what your size is, what your scope is, where your plan to go is. There's probably something that's on your plate that you're paying attention to that we definitely want to ensure we are as well. So anything else to add there, Brad? I don't think so. I do, you know, I'm just, I'm so appreciative of the work that ASPA does to, to champion these changes. It would be incredibly difficult as one manufacturer to get some of these great changes and, you know, some of the creativity ASPA has shown, and I'll use live music as the example, you know, um, it, add, it would add cost to a manufacturer's business, but it helps our licensee partners, which are the front line of helping spread the brand, get everything in people's hands. And so I appreciate the creativity as, but takes looking at policy and saying, hey, it's one thing to look at it as a manufacturer. It's another thing to look at it as a total value chain. And how can we remove red tape, find other ways to collaborate and, and make our communities more exciting. So I, I'm grateful for that. I'd be grateful for more people on the policy committee because... Policy doesn't always seem sexy, but I think these inducement changes prove policy can be quite fun. It can open a lot of doors and, and really give a lot of opportunity for people to, to grow and not get offside with our regulator, which we want to avoid. <laughs> Perfect. That's a great note to leave that on. So, Brad, I will thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, look for more information in the comments. So if you have any questions or follow up about those policies, we will have comments below that link directly to or reference exactly which policies we were talking about in that segment with Brad. If you have any questions, as always, reach out to ASBA. Happy to answer, happy to clarify whatever we can. And if we don't have the answer, we'll get it for you. Um, as well, ASBA members, you can check previous emails. There's a bit more information in those and weekly emails will have those. Know your handbook updates in them as well. Uh, so my thanks to Cole, Shane, and Brad for sitting with me today, having a conversation. Watch for Unity Brew coming out October 14th at the beginning of Alberta Beer Week. And we have a couple of other really fun events coming up. We have the Alberta Beer Awards, ju Awards judging is going to happen September 9th, 10th, and 11th. Really excited to get that underway. And then those will be handed out on October 18th in Red Deer at the Alberta Beer Awards Gala. So you'll have the opportunity to see if some of your favorite beers win uh, in any of our 30 categories. Uh, same with seltzers, RTDs, lemonades, sodas, uh, categories for a bunch of the different things that our local Alberta craft brewers are making. So really exciting times coming up. And for ASBA members, we have a Taps and Tips coming up on September 22nd where we'll be talking to MNP about grants, grant writing, and grants that are available. So stay tuned for that. Check the website for the event details. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.